Uh, well, fortunate for you, we are going to spend the next several months walking through this book, uh, kind of line upon line. We're going we're gonna to take our time as we go through it. It's going to take us all the way up till Advent. Uh, so it's going to be fun. I like looking at these videos first because uh, it kind of sets the overall tone for the book that we're about to study. It's important because the big, to get the big picture of this letter, this epistle. And so uh, I know when we looked at First Timothy a while back, we spent some time looking at what exactly these letters are. But you got to remember, these are personal letters written by somebody to somebody. They were not intended necessarily to be broken up into their small parts and studied in fractions. It's healthy sometimes to get this big picture, to sit down, and, and I encourage you to do this. You're, as you're looking at Ephesians or you're looking at Galatians as we're studying this, read the whole book in one sitting. and It'll take you a half hour or so. Just sit down and read it but all the way through. It won't take that long. And uh, you'll, you'll start to see different things in the overarching way Paul's communicating. You'll start to see different things that don't stand out when you just take it in a really small section like we're about to do. Um, yeah, so as with all the letters, uh, it's also really important to realize there's a whole bunch of backstory where you're reading somebody's mail. And so there's a whole bunch of backstory that's happened and reason why Paul's writing this letter, and all we have is the letter. So we don't fully know. We have to do some detective work to try to explore why was Paul writing this letter, who are the Galatians, what's going on here. None of that's explicit. You have to do some work to try to figure that out. My goal tonight is really just to set an introduction for the book an introduction for this study, and why it is that we're going to be studying this. Um, yeah, it's a, I think it's important that as we reflect on this introduction that Paul's writing, that, we, that Mary read, it's in, important that we take a second and we allow it to cut us a little bit. We allow it to kind of sit in and think through this. The introductions tend to be parts of the book, if we're honest. When you do sit down and you read all the way through, you kind of skip it over. It's the, like, dear Galatia, it's, it's the pleasantries at the beginning of the, of the letter, and you kind of, anybody else, or is it just me? It's like, okay. Uh, it's, it's helpful to put ourselves in the shoes of the recipients, these Galatian churches. So let's let's jump in. Paul, an apostle. Verse 1. Not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. This letter is written by Paul, the apostle Paul. It's pretty clear there. Paul, an apostle. Most scholars uh, would agree this was one of the first letters that Paul wrote. In fact, I, I believe this is one of the earliest writings of the New Testament, probably somewhere around A.D. 50. Oddly enough, if you know like Reformation history, 
it's probably this book and the epistle of James that were written the earliest all at the same time, somewhere AD 48 to AD 50. This is the earliest of what we have of Paul's writings. Most people agree this predates all four Gospels. It's an early writing. Probably written, like I said, around AD 50. It's not, if you think about that, it's not long after the resurrection. Like to put it in context, we're talking less than 20 years later possibly. That's like in, in context for us, early 2000s. This is recent history. Things are, are just beginning to develop. Think about all the things that happened in the early 2000s, right? The Twin Towers, George W. Bush, all that is going on. That, that's not that long ago. I mean, maybe it feels like that long ago, but it's not really that long ago. The Jesus movement was young. It was still developing. It was very new. And most likely, Paul is writing this letter to young churches that had been planted on his first missionary journey. So as Paul had traveled, he had begun planting these churches, and that's, they're probably very new, very young churches developing. What's interesting to point out, this letter is not written specifically or strictly to one church. This is written to the churches of Galatia, to a whole region of churches. It was intended to be circulated amongst those churches and read in entirety in front of the whole group, possibly in house churches. It's likely <clears throat> that these young churches were predominantly Gentiles. These are not necessarily uh, Jewish communities. And in these first 10 verses that we're going to look at tonight, these first, this initial phase, uh, it really sets the tone for the rest of the letter. You begin to get the feeling of what Paul's trying to get after right at the beginning. Like he doesn't play around. He jumps straight in. Paul jumps right to the crux of the matter. He's confronting head-on a teaching that he sees as detrimental and dangerous to these young churches. Galatians is all about the gospel. It's all about the good news of the grace of Jesus, the empowerment of Jesus given to us by the work of the cross. Grace is the central topic over and over and over as you read through Galatians. It's the direct counter-argument to those who are causing problems in this young, young group of churches. Let's look at Paul's introduction here and look a little bit clearer what is happening. Again, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. Paul, even in his introduction, and I love this about Paul, is you, if you read Paul enough, you'll start to catch this. He can't even help himself. It's like he, he's introducing himself. Paul, an apostle, and he jumps straight into theology. He just jumps straight into the gospel. He's defending his apostleship, because that's part of what's in question here. 
And this is how he does it. He says, my apostles, I'm an apostle, but not from men, not through men, but through Jesus and God the Father by the power of the resurrection. That's where he gets his apostleship from. He's pinning his calling as an apostle, his function, his gifting, the reason he even planted these churches. He's pinning all of that on the grace of God. It's nothing he did to deserve it or to be called into it. It's purely a work of the grace of God. And grace, even in a, in a world that is predominantly post-Christian, I mean, Christian thought has pervaded the way that we think. And even in a world where grace should be commonplace, we should understand what grace is. Grace, if we're honest, is still foreign to us. We don't naturally live out grace. It's a, the concept of God making peace with us out of his own effort, his own volition, his own strive, his own work, uh, and not us working to make peace with him, that's a completely foreign concept still. It's uniquely Christian, this idea of grace. Grace means that the like, textbook definition of grace is unmerited favor. It's an unmerited gift, something you don't deserve, but you're given anyways. I think it's helpful, though, to expound on that a little bit, that it's not just any gift. When we talk about Christian, the gospel grace, what we're talking about is you're given the gift of the ability to become like Jesus. You're given grace as an empowerment to do something you never had the ability to do before. It's not just an arbitrary gift. You're given the empowerment to be like Jesus. But we don't, we don't often understand. We don't, we don't actually live as if we understand the idea of grace. Think about your children. I heard an argument this morning with my kids. That's not fair. Abby wanted a cookie, and she's like, did they get a cookie? I, that's not fair. That's not, they don't get grace. It's not our natural disposition to understand grace. We want things fair. We want it right. We want it just. Every culture, every worldview insists that we can make our own way, that we out of our own self-reliance, our own self-initiative, our, our posture, that we can make things happen. Even as, for us as Christians, this is hard for us to un, unwind ourselves from. This idea that we can work to make something happen. It still leaves its effects on us. We still feel the effects of works righteousness. We feel like we need to perform to please God. We need to perform to, uh, to achieve right standing with him. And that's the antithesis of grace. We call it works righteousness. It's the very thing that caused the Reformation. We're all products of the Reformation in this room. And we have been struggling with this same issue for a very long time. It's the same issue uh, that we've been dealing with. By the way, if you're a student of the Reformation, Martin Luther 
He said of Galatians, I I saw this quote and I, I loved it. He said, the epistle of the Galatians is my epistle to which I have wedded myself. He betrothed himself to this book. He so loved it. That's, you've got to be kind of a, really a Bible geek for that to be the case. But uh, the grace was the foundation for the Reformation. Without it, there's no gospel at all, and that's what led to that. We hear Paul's tone here in this introduction. We hear Paul's, uh, his passion as you read through this introduction. And very specifically, Paul is dealing with this form of legalism, this form of, of uh, control and works righteousness that had infiltrated these young churches and was, uh, in Paul's mind, causing major problems. Over the next several weeks, months, we're going to begin more clearly to look and define what the gospel is. Where the overall, overall theme of this study is one true gospel. I think Galatians deals heavily with what the gospel is by looking at what it's not. Romans is Paul's sort of like crown jewel where he really focuses on what the gospel is. Galatians focuses pretty heavily on what it's not. And so you're, you're defining it by that. Like I said last week, the goal for us, for us as a community, is to be a a people that is so saturated with the gospel, so overwhelmed and consumed with the good news of Jesus, so uh, consumed with the story of the restoration of all things and the power of the Holy Spirit to, to accomplish everything that he set out to do, that the default thing that comes out of us when we're pressed is gospel, The default thing that comes out of us when we're pushed is gospel. And Paul is dealing in this letter with a counterfeit version of that, a a false gospel, a counterfeit gospel. The best way to deal with counterfeiting, so I'm told, is to become completely knowledgeable of the real deal. To become completely aware of and and, uh, immersed in what the real deal is. So you can easily spot a fake. The point there is, it's not that we need to study all the different versions of the false gospels that are out there. Because guys, there's thousands of them. False gospels. Distorted versions of the gospel. The the point isn't that we need to become proficient in knowing all the different versions of the false gospel that's out there. The point is, we need to be so consumed with knowing the real deal with knowing the gospel, that we know. We can, we can smell a false gospel. That we could recognize it from far off. The point is that we should be so full of the good news of Jesus, of his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his commissioning of the church, sending of the Spirit, his indwelling of us and empowering of us. We should be so full of that story and the grace and the empowerment of it that we quickly discern when something is off. We quickly discern any false narratives that are at play at that. We recognize them and we're not swayed by them to the left or the right. 
And apparently, that's exactly what Paul's trying to deal with in these young churches. They were not only giving ear to a false gospel, they were actually being swayed by it. And the reality is, the truth is, whenever God is moving, whenever God is doing something, the adversary would like nothing more than to inject doubts and divisions, dissensions, discord, to get you off guard and consumed with other things other than the gospel. As God takes us as a church into a place like we were talking about last week of intentionally living out the implications of the gospel, partnering with Jesus on his mission on the earth, we must be diligent to keep grace and the gospel of Jesus as the center of all the things that we do. It has to be the center. It has to be the core of everything we do as we sing, as we gather, as we read Ephesians, as we drink coffee at land and water. Whatever you're doing, the gospel has to be the center of it. Even as we talk about, as we looked at last week, radical obedience and like a reordering of your life around the mission of God, that all has to be saturated in grace. We can't become legalistic even about that. It needs to be centered on the gospel. So what was it specifically that these young churches in Galatia were dealing with it? What counterfeit were they dealing with? Most scholars and, and Tim Mackey said that these, the counterfeit they're dealing with is this thing called Judaizers, this group called Judaizers. These false teachers were essentially saying that in order to have right relationship with Jesus, right relationship with God, you had to trust Jesus plus basically you had to become a Jew by following the laws of the Torah, specifically being circumcised. The issue of uh, circumcision is actually exactly what the Jerusalem Council met about in Acts 15. It'd be worth reading if you want to read how they dealt with it. We're not going to go into it tonight, but probably throughout the rest of this series we'll look at that. This is exactly the issue of what's happening here in Galatians. These legalists, these Judaizers, had come and they were attempting to infiltrate these young churches. Paul says in verse 7, that they had come to trouble them. They were throwing these churches into confusions, into confusion, and actually preventing real gospel work because they were, everybody was confused. The question for us always has to be, what does this problem in this ancient small church, this young church, an early 80, 50s, what does this have to do with us here and now? And why are we reading this? Why is this important? I mean, if we're honest, it's not like there's a whole lot of talk around circumcision going on, right? There's all these other Old Testament laws, like, they're fun to talk about, but we don't spend a whole ton of energy dealing with what these actually mean. They're worthwhile talking about, though. 
most of that seems to be to have been dealt with. I mean, honestly, that's kind of what we had the Reformation for, right? Martin Luther had like his thesis all about some of this, works righteousness. The reality is, though, that there are always and there will always be threats to the purity of the gospel. As we strive to be that people that is saturated with the good news of Jesus, we long for a pure and simple gospel. There will always be threats to that truth. Distortions that come from the form of tradition or legalism or liberalism or politics or nationalism, any, any of those things, they, they find a way to get in and pervert and distort the good news of Jesus. It's never the gospel plus. It's always just the gospel. Let's keep going. Verse 3. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is so familiar to us. This is the way Paul opens up almost all of his letters. Like you could do a survey. You could walk through the beginning of every epistle. They're very similar to the way he opens his letter. But take a second here. It's worthwhile just thinking through some of these words. Paul always opens his letters with this grace and peace. Grace and peace to you. The standard method of writing a letter in Paul's day would have just been to offer peace or good wishings. And Paul always includes this, combina this combination in this order, grace and peace. It's always grace first. Because you can have no peace without grace. Longing for peace with God without the grace of God will get you nowhere. It's only by grace that we can have peace. The only way to peace with God and peace with each other is grace. It's the unmerited favor and empowerment that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Specifically, what kind of Messiah? The Lord Jesus, he Paul says, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to his will, according to the will of our Father, of our God and Father. The Messiah gave himself. Jesus gave himself. That's the gospel, guys. This is the good news. Out of his own free will, he gave himself. We don't need to earn him. We don't deserve him. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And all of that is not even our idea. It's not even our good idea. It's, it's the plan of the Father. It was his idea from the beginning. His plan, his power, his life, his blood, his cross, his son, 
not ours. We didn't do anything to deserve it. It was a free gift, completely unmerited. And to him be glory forever and ever. Amen, Paul says. I love that Paul just, he just jumps right in. In the middle of writing about something, he just breaks out into praise. To that God, to the Messiah, be glory and glory forever. And then we get to verse 6. And Paul breaks every rule of normal letter writing conventions of his day. Go read every other one of his letters. The very next thing is going to be a blessing or a thanksgiving. It was very normal in the structure. Like So we have, you write, dear so-and-so, and you write the body of your letter and maybe a, a postscript. Like we have a convention of the way we write a letter. They did too. It was very normal, standard, and expected for there to be a thanksgiving or a blessing pronounced over the recipient. Paul skips it. He skips all the pleasantries. He skips the thanksgiving and the blessings for the Galatian churches. He jumps straight to the heart of the matter. He's addressing a problem. There are false teachers infiltrating these young churches. There are wolves in the camp. You've got to put yourself in Paul's shoes for a second. Think about it like, how would you respond if you were watching your kids play on their bikes and they're riding along the sidewalk, and all of a sudden they're veering into the street with an oncoming car. You would, what would you do? You'd shout, stop! Don't go any further. You'd stop them. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's correcting his beloved children. Stop! Don't go any further. He's trying to get their attention. He's trying to stop them from proceeding in the direction that they're going. That's not safe. If you keep going there, you're going to end up in destruction. You will get seriously hurt if you keep going in this direction. It's, it's urgent. Skip the pleasantries. Skip the blessings and the thanksgiving. We're going to get right to the heart of the matter. Paul says, stop what you're doing. Apparently, it seems like at this point, the Galatian church had already been listening to these false teachers. They're already giving ear to them. I was reminded as I was thinking through this, in the book of Jude, we're told to contend for the faith. We're told to contend the word contend is like an, it's an athletic term that means to agonize greatly or to struggle, to work like an athlete training. We are to contend for the faith, for the true gospel, like an athlete that struggles and agonizes in, its, in his training. And if we're honest, we, we just don't. We don't do that. I think we're called, like we looked at last week in 1 Peter, 
We're called, each and every one of us, not just the elders, we're all called to be able to give an answer for the hope that's within us. We're all called to be ready to present and, and, and lead people in the way of the gospel. And it begs the question that we have to reflect and think, like, are we talking about the gospel? Are we so saturated in the story of the good news of Jesus that that's the natural thing that comes out when we're in conversation with friends, coworkers, people at the cafe? Is that the first thing that comes out when we're pushed and challenged? Or do they hear all of our frustrations and irritations with whatever else is going on in, in the world? I hear often as we talk, like, like I did last week, keep referencing last week, hear often a big pushback is when we talk about living an intentional, missional lifestyle, living and making disciples, people feel ill-prepared. They feel underprepared. They don't feel like they know enough. They're not trained enough. And if you feel like that, if that's you, good news for you. That's actually what Galatians is written for. <laughs> We're going to go through this. I think Galatians is Paul. He's, he's trying to train them, the churches, these young churches in Galatia, to know the gospel. To be so full of the gospel that it's the natural thing that comes out, to the, out of them. He's training these young churches to contend for the true gospel. To be saturated in the one true message of Jesus. He's showing them how to detect a counterfeit gospel by emphasizing what the real one is. So while it would have been proper for Paul to start his letter by thanking God for the Galatian church and for blessing them, Paul's so burdened by what's going on that he doesn't have time for that. He offers none of that. He just jumps straight in. Watch out. There's no platitudes, no kind words. He just jumps in. This is what he says. Verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul says, I'm astonished. My mind is blown. I can't even right now. Completely amazed by what's going on. I've heard these stories and I am astonished. What's so shocking to Paul? These young churches are deserting. That's what he says. They're deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Notice that word turning. John Stott, in his commentary on, on Galatians, points to this. He says that word turning means to transfer one's allegiance. It's like a military term of transferring your allegiance from one side to the other. It's used of a soldier in, in the military who would turn and fight for the other side. Or of a politician who would switch to the opposing political party. It's a big deal. They were deserting Jesus. 
and playing for the other side is Paul's implication there. They probably didn't even realize it because it was all like wrapped in this veneer of Jesus. It's not just that they were deserting an idea or a doctrine or a movement. Paul says they were deserting the very one who had called them to faith. They were deserting God the Father. They were turning their back on him. Embracing legalism, Paul's saying, is rejecting God. According to Paul's reasoning, it's rejecting God because it means substituting man's effort for the thing that he already accomplished for you. This is significant that once again, as Paul's getting into this, he he emphasizes that the one who has called you by the grace of Christ, Paul is reiterating over and over, it is God. For God did the calling. It is grace, not merit. It's nothing you did. It's God who did it. It's grace that you didn't deserve. This had to have felt personal for Paul. It's the only explanation for the way he just jumps straight into this letter. We know from later on in chapter 4 that he considers these churches, Paul says, my little children for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. My little children for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. This is personal for Paul. He's heartbroken. He's in agony. He's wanting to see them grow up into Christ-likeness, to mature in their discipleship. And they're deserting the way of Jesus. They're deserting the God who had paid the price for them. Truth matters. And it should matter to us when somebody leaves the faith. When somebody walks away from the church, walks away from the fellowship of the believers, walks away from the gospel, that should bother us. It matters. It also matters when somebody turns towards truth. We should rejoice and celebrate that. So Paul's astonished. And it was not just that they were turning to a different gospel, but specifically that they were so quickly turning. So quickly. This reminded me of the story of the golden calf. How quickly. Remember the story of the golden calf? Israel had just been delivered from Egypt. They're receiving the law from God. They received the law from God. And just when they had made this covenant commitment, just when they had committed themselves to practice the Torah and to follow Yahweh, just when they had done that, Moses goes back up on the mountain and what happens? Immediately after They make an idol. They make a golden calf. And they worship it in the place of God, of Yahweh. This is how Paul sees what's happening in the churches of Galatia. The good news for us and for them is that we are not hopeless, Paul says. 
Paul says that they were turning. They were in process. The implication there is they still had time to contend for the faith and to live correctly in the light of the gospel. I'm astonished, Paul says, that you are so quickly desert, deserting him who had called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and distort the gospel of Christ. This series that we're going to go through, we're looking, we're focusing on the one true gospel. One true gospel. And my prayer is that we would be so saturated with that gospel that we would not be swayed by any pretender. I love how Paul says it, and he clearly says it, you're turning to a fake gospel. <laughs> a different gospel, not that there is another one. This is a pretend gospel. It's not even good news. It's a fake. It's a cheap knockoff. It's a distortion, Paul says, of the real thing. And I think that's really important. Because it's not a decisive, clear contradiction per se. It's a distortion. It's in the veneer of Jesus even. It's a distortion of the gospel. They were taking the message of Christianity and they were adding to it. They were distorting it and perverting it into something of an abomination. Something that had no actual power. It was no longer the gospel. This is where I think this is helpful for us. We are so prone to add to the grace of God. We're so prone to add to the gospel. We add tradition. We add preference. We add politics. Whatever it is, we add things. We're prone to that. Sometimes we subtract. Sometimes we take away things. I, I don't like that part of Jesus. I don't like his church. I don't like these things. I, I want to take that away. You can't do that. It was one true gospel. We can't try to make Jesus more palatable for the world around us. That's also a distortion of the gospel. There's nothing new here. Paul's dealing with the same thing that we're dealing with now. False teachers who are troubling the churches, agitating and distorting them. They're agitating and shaking up these churches. But it was all contrary to the way of Jesus. It was a counterfeit, false gospel. This is how the enemy still works today. He stirs up dissension and frustration in the community. He sows seed of agitation, shakes things up, stirs up confusion, plants the seeds that are contrary to the way of Jesus. And if he can't succeed with doctrine, he'll use secondary issues, things that don't matter, but we make them matter. But we, as followers of Jesus, are to be people of the truth, people of the gospel, shaped and formed by the gospel, by the cross, saturated and so full of the story of Jesus. 
his impact on our lives, that we don't even get caught up with these distractions. And Paul's prayer was that we would be so acquainted with the gospel, so full of it, that we wouldn't be able to be troubled by these distortions. And as if we haven't already understood the gravity of Paul's concerns, we get verse 8 through 10. Let's read these. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And we have said before, and now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you have received, let him be accursed. For am I now speaking, seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man or am I, uh, am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Anytime this is just, Bible study here, anytime the Bible repeats itself, it's like putting an exclamation point at the end of it. And Paul's repeating himself here. If anyone, even an angel from heaven, preaches another gospel, he's accursed. He's, he's trying to make this abundantly clear. And he's not trying to be popular or gain anyone's approval. He makes that very clear by verse 10. He's not trying to please anyone. But if anyone distorts the gospel, there are tragic consequences. Damnable consequences. The lake of fire is the result. He actually pronounces a curse on anyone who would distort the gospel. I feel like it's really important. Maybe it's just me. But as I read these verses, sometimes... That feels so heavy. Like, I don't even want to make an error in the way I present the gospel then because I don't want to be cursed. But I don't think that's the point. I don't think the point is if you miss a part of the story, if you forget a key fact, or if you don't have the four spiritual laws memorized, that you're going to be accursed if you miss a point. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is those who are intentionally working to distort the good news of Jesus, the simple gospel of grace, those who would strive and would commit themselves to distorting the way of Jesus, those who would work to take those who are following Jesus and try to lead them to go a different way, that's damning. That's, there's a curse associated with that. You're leading yourself and others to the lake of fire. And that's heavy. Paul says, and this is really important, we'll end with this. Paul says, to a gospel that is contrary to the one that we preach to you. It's really, really important because what gospel did Paul preach? We could, we could have lots of conversations about what is the gospel. What, when Paul says, if anybody preaches another gospel other than the one I preach, what is he even talking about? What gospel did Paul preach? That's the heart of what's coming for the next few months. What is the gospel? 
But for me, I will always come back to 1 Corinthians 15 when somebody asks me what's the gospel. There's a reason for that. If you turn there, 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel is good news. It's good news about something that has happened that as a result of what happened, everything is new. Everything is changed. It's good news about a victory that's been accomplished, and because of that, everything is changed. It's not good advice. It's good news. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. This is why I go here. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached. Okay, Paul, he's going to actually tell us the gospel he preached right here. The gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the words that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, but by the grace of of God, I am that I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, or so that I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. That's the good news that, G- that Paul preached. That's the gospel that Paul preached. The story of Jesus with the resulting grace that affected his life and commissioned him. We practice this every week as we take communion. We rehearse and remind ourselves of the story that he died for our sins, that he was buried and raised in accordance with scripture, that he appeared to many, that he was truly alive We need to be so acquainted with that story, so full of that story, and its effect, the grace and that that working in our lives, that we could say with Paul, by grace, the grace of God, I am what I am. Because of this story that happened a long time ago, this thing that happened on the cross, that's why I am that I am. That's why I live this way. That's why I have this hope. Jordan, you can come back up. My prayer for us tonight is that we would know the gospel. That we would be so acquainted with this story and with its implications and the grace that flows from it that we would be unmoved by any potential challenger. There's no challenge to the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Father,
God, I thank you for this letter. I thank you that you so moved on this man, Paul, that he would remind us thousands of years later of the good news of Jesus. That he would point us again to the cross, to the way of the cross, to the way of Jesus and the free gift of grace and empowerment to be like Jesus. God, remind us again of the good news of what you accomplished on that cross. Help us to never grow weary of the gospel. Never grow tired of remembering that story, of telling the story, of rehearsing how it's affected our lives. Jesus, remind us again of all that you've accomplished. Amen.